0: Uh, I want to first thank CD Media for providing a platform for the intellectuals broadcast. Today is our second in a series of interviews with prominent voices, scholars, experts on the subject of racism and radicalism. My name is Ron Scott, I'm the Vice President of a 501c3 nonprofit named Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services. You can learn more about our history. And our mission at www.stars.us. That's stars with two Rs.us. Our guest today is a friend of mine, a gentleman that I've come to, to know and respect and admire, is Dr. M. Zudi Jasser. Dr. Jasser is the son of Syrian immigrants who fled Bathist oppression in 1966. President and founder. Of the american islamic forum for democracy a phoenix-based counter islamism think tank founded in 2003 yet he finds the time to invest his research and analysis while being a full-time physician a former u.s navy lieutenant commander he is also a co-founder of the muslim reform movement and a former vice chair of the u.s commission on international religious freedom appointed by the u.s senate from 2012 to 2016. Dr. Jasser is an internationally recognized expert on Islamism or political Islam. He is widely published in the field, featured in many top tier media, and regularly testifies to the US Congress on the Islamist global threat and our domestic and foreign strategy. Dr. Jasser is the author of the book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, An American Muslim Patriot's Fight to Save His Faith. I have a copy on my desk, and I've read it twice already. He hosts the weekly podcast, Reform This, on the Blaze Radio. You can find him at Twitter, at Dr. Zudi Jasser, at Dr. Zudi, Z-U-H-D-I, Jasser. Welcome, Dr. Jasser.
1: It's great to be with you, Ron, and it's, uh, it's an honor to work with you on uh, your projects, and uh, thanks for having me on your program.
0: Well, I know you've had a full day seeing patients and whatever, so uh, hopefully this will be a, l- a break for you. Uh, just to warm, warm up the audience, Dr. Jaster, tell us a little bit about your background, where you are from, your education, military service, and why and how you became a doctor.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm uh, a first-generation American. I was born uh, a few months after my parents uh, came to the U.S. Uh, uh, My um, mother and father had escaped uh, Syria in uh, 1966. And uh, they uh, first went to Beirut and uh, then came to the United States. And uh, for a few months, up to six months, they didn't know if they were going to be able to stay. And then a, a, a congress member in Ohio, where my dad did his internship, uh, was able to uh, get him asylum, and ultimately they escaped the Ba'athist uh, regime that had uh, uh, basically had a final coup after 20, 25 different coups between 1948 and 1963 in Syria. Uh, after the French pulled out, uh, the uh, people basically had no weapons, the military had been uh, uh, radicalized by various factions. And uh, took over through multiple coups, months after months. And the Baathist Party was basically the uh, Syrian fascists or the Syrian Nazis, if you will, that were a national socialist fascist party uh, that believed in pan Arabism and brought a, a socialist regime, if you will. Uh, my father had long studied in, in London in the West and had been a uh, uh, not only an Anglophile, but a, a lover of American history and, and the constitutional system here. So he had always dreamed to come here. Uh, I was raised in Wisconsin and uh, was raised to believe that I could practice my faith more freely in Wisconsin and America than I could anywhere in the Middle East or any Muslim-majority countries. So obviously the the type of Islam I had was a very personal Islam. Uh, then I went to the University of Wisconsin uh, undergrad uh, was accepted on a medical program, uh, a seven-year medical program through the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, uh, was on a Navy scholarship. Uh, I learned in undergrad as I tried to be active at the Muslim Student Association that not everything Islamic was the way I had been raised in a small town. The Islamic uh, Medical Student Association was a Muslim Brotherhood uh, type organization. I quickly studied on what the Muslim Brotherhood was and what all these organizations that were around the country claiming to be Muslim we actually part of this Islamist movement, if you will, of, of evangelical, um, proselytizing type movements that the Saudis, that uh, the uh, various uh, types of uh, uh, petro-Islamic organizations and governments had funded in the West to try to shape Western policy and try to turn the West on the defense. And I learned about political Islam. Uh, then I served 11 years in the Navy. I, I wanted to go into medicine because I felt that that vocation not only was uh, what my father had done, but actually if he had wanted me to do it and push me into it, I probably wouldn't have done it. Uh, I went into medicine because the doctor-patient relationship was to me a, a relationship that not only uh, I was able to uh, learn about God's creation, which is mankind, uh, but uh, help people through the toughest times of their lives through illness and and uh, from uh, to health, or, or sometimes to help them deal with uh, death and dying, and also with that, I became an expert in bioethics. Uh, have tra- have taught and run bioethics programs not only the military in Washington at Bethesda Naval Hospital, but also here in Arizona, where I've settled down to practice now over the last twenty-five years uh, since leaving the Navy after eleven years. I served in Somalia. Uh, was on the USS El Paso from ninety-two to ninety-four. And uh, then did the rest of my training at Bethesda Naval Hospital, was a chief resident there. And my last tour before finishing with the Navy was as a physician to Congress. I worked as one of the internists at the attending physician's office to Congress, uh, taking care of the members of Congress and also uh, the Supreme Court justices. So I I just have to pinch myself and thank my parents for for coming to America. And uh, since 9-11, I had uh, basically become focused on, you know, after Al-Qaeda attacked us, we saw what happened with 9-11. We realized that terrorism was a symptom of a deeper disease. And the deeper disease, the cancer if you will, is political Islam and the desire for supremacy of the Islamic State and the theocratic state of Islamic States, if you will. And we can talk about that now if you want, but at, I just want people to understand that, you know, I felt obligated even though most Muslims living in the West don't even feel pressured at all by these radical groups. I feel that if we don't do something about it living here, my family, I can tell you, in Syria, now living through revolutions uh, and uh, uh, being attacked from, on one side, by Assad using chemical weapons, and on the other side, by radical groups like ISIS, uh, we can do things here in the West that you just can't do in Muslim majority countries right now.
0: Well, I, I, I think you are uniquely qualified. <clears throat> to analyze what we're going through now in a a different form of radicalism. Uh, Let me offer a definition that's provided from the Michigan State University archives. Uh, They define radicalism as the beliefs or actions of individuals, groups, or organizations who advocate for thorough or complete social and or political reform to achieve an alternative vision of American society. And so when I heard you describe your experience and, and your research and understanding of political Islam, we're seeing similar dynamics play out in America today as it relates to racism and, and the radicalism that's associated with it. Uh, now, are you comfortable with that definition, Dr. Jasser? Is that a pretty uh, appropriate uh, way of describing some of the political movements that are playing out in America?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the context of the definition of radicalism is about how far adrift from the center an ideology is, and also the means that they would use to obtain their desire for uh, a, a, a political change or system systematic change. So in the American context, a moderation is not about political differences, uh, the the mainstream politics, if you will, regardless of whether you think on the left, uh, whether it should be larger government responsibility or entitlements and less of a security type state, or on the right as a conservative, whether it's uh, a stronger security, stronger border, less taxation, all these things are shifting around one thing, which is a united belief in this constitutionality of our system and the belief in not only our constitution and bill of rights, but our separation of powers and sort of what Americanism is. And I will tell you, our focus, that the way to reform political Islam is to bring the ideology of Americanism to it. And if you can't define America, you know, it's interesting. We've always talked about counters, counter-jihad counter and counter-Islamist movements as somehow being telling youth that they don't need to adapt to the jihadi cool or the radicalism of what that is. And uh, we've always told the FBI and told the Islamist groups that are apologists, You can't just say what you're against. You have to say what you're for. Radicals in America are for something very different than what we believe Americanism to be. So the progressivists claim to be simply progressive, but at the end of the day, they see society as one in which the government confiscates everything we own. The government owns the ability to decide what it is is property, and there is really no concept of private property to them. To them, they see... Uh, 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 America's uh, beauty, not built on goodness, but rather built on evil and its history, and they will destroy our institutions. Radical Islam, now I say the context is important because I'm defined as a radical in the Middle East. I'm defined as somebody who, who is bearing radicalism because I, I, I not only push against the tide, but we completely believe there needs to be revolutions across the Middle East because their governments are so corrupt their fascist governments of military dictatorships from Egypt to Pakistan are corrupt, or the Islamist theocratic governments from Iran to Saudi Arabia are corrupt. So it defends what the context is. In America, I believe the Islamists are radical because they don't believe, they believe if Muslims became a majority, that ultimately you should have an Islamic state, that democracy to them is a majoritocracy in which if the majority believes to throw away the constitution, then that's fine. Versus there's a reason we're not defined as a democracy in America, we're defined as a republic. Because ultimately, the judicial system will protect us from oppression of the majority. And this is, this is what federalism is. This is the concept of what Americanism is. And ultimately, these definitions are very important. Because the reason you see the left, the far left, and the Islamists, which I'm fighting. Let me define for your audience what Islamists are. Islamists are those who are followers of the faith of islam but believe that the legal system and the party that they belong to is an islamic party so the muslim brotherhood in egypt is a party the muslim brotherhood in pakistan is jamaat islami it's a political party with a platform of ideas that they want to put into place if they became in power so their legal system the instrument of their uh, uh party would be sharia or islamic law so Americanism, I believe, is founded on the fight against theocracy, against the institution of the establishment of a church in government, which is what our revolution was all about. So the radicals of 1776 that ultimately got together in 1789 and ratified our Constitution, those radicals were people I admire that I believe are the heroes of of this country, Jefferson and Madison and George Washington and others. Today, radicals are trying to destroy our institutions in America— The far left is working with the Islamists in doing that. I think many of us in the counter and the anti-Islamist movement talk about being for liberty and for freedom because if all you do is say, I'm against terrorism, I'm against Al-Qaeda or ISIS, you're not going to be able to tell youth what they should be for. And this is the last thing I wanted to say about this is when we try to counter-radicalize, we try to teach youth that it is what, you know, what would they die for? The radical jihadists want to die for an Islamic state. They want to die for the the Islamist movement, no matter where it might be. The only thing I would ever want to die for is America. That's why I joined the U.S. Navy. I would never want to die for my faith or, or you know, I think God doesn't need me to die for him, but our country needs me to die for it because ultimately if we can't protect these freedoms, we will. my, my kids and my kids' kids won't have freedom to to breathe anymore, and they'll be oppressed in a system that loses its core identities.
0: Well, Dr. Jasser, a couple years ago, I read an article that you'd published in Newsweek uh, about the red-green axis. Yeah, so thinking back to your family's immigration to Syria, your research, your uh, understanding of political Islam, and now the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, those different vectors, and do they feed on each other in some way?
1: Very much so. You know, First, let me say, when we say red-green, red being far-left communist and Marxist and socialist, and green being the Islamist, the green flag of from Saudi Arabia to Iran's flag to Pakistan's green. You know, these Islamist movements, the Muslim Brotherhood flag of the swords and the and the uh, uh, Quranic scripture is uh, thought to be green, and the red-green axis is not something new. This is an axis of cooperation that has been going on at the UN for generations. The Venezuelas of the world, the far-left red countries, the Venezuelas and Chinas have been working very closely with the Irans, the Pakistans, the Islamist movements of the world, Uh, and and that red-green axis is the reason why the UN which is funded so much by us and the West, ends up focusing over half of its votes on Israel because the red-green axis together works on putting the West, the left, on defense. So now let's turn domestically. Obviously, wait, let me just finish one thing on that, which is obviously the, the, Israel is not only our greatest ally, is the only democracy in the Middle East, and yet the UN ends up focusing its supposed uh, uh, empathy about human rights on the Palestinians when in fact it ignores the human rights crimes done uh, against humanity in Iran and Syria and Libya and elsewhere because it is being driven by this red-green axis. And this red-green axis is very powerful. Now, let's come domestically to what's happened with the Black Lives Matter movement. The Black Lives Matter movement, on the one hand, is classically born out of a good idea, which is to fight against racism, to to protect the equality of all races, things that every American that I know and respect believes in. But yet classic with Aurelian manipulation of language and classic with with, with far-left radical movements is to build things on a premise that most people that are sentient human beings would believe in and then use that to impose a, a fascistic mantra, a oppressive mantra that, says that anyone that disagrees with it somehow uh, uh, does not uh, toe the line of equality and diversity. And that's what identity movements do. Identity movements are not about the ideas, but about skin-deep identity. So Islamists, they do the same thing. For long, many of us have been trying to fight for reform, and we're told that, oh, we're Islamophobes. And the West has not been able to sort of peel the onion of radical Islam because they're being told by these other governments that they're anti-Muslim because they're critical of some of the ideas of political Islam. So the Black Lives Matter movement similarly doesn't deal with some of the core and root causes of of the uh, um, lack of equity, as they call it, that might exist in inner cities across the country. No, they don't want to deal with root causes. They'd rather simply blame the other and racialize the problem. And that's why when people like Condoleezza Rice... Uh, uh, speak out or or, or uh, 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 steal and others that are well well respected in the African American community and might have other ideas about root cause analysis. They're told in a very Orwellian way that they are Uncle Toms or somehow they don't they don't fit in and and they're simply tools of of racial uh, division and. At the end of the day, people should understand that where did the BLM movement start a couple years ago? Not only, let's look at its funding. Funded by uh, uh, disruptors of democracy, funded by Soros and others uh, through Europe that wanted to destroy institutions that were long democratic institutions in exchange for the the installation of socialist institutions and far-left institutions in Europe. And now we see this in the United States where... A lot of the riots that were called demonstrations were actually riots that were intentionally now you see statues of Jefferson being removed from state houses in New York and elsewhere because if you can, and this is what the Islamists did in Afghanistan, they destroyed statues of Buddha and other things that they said were anti-Islam when in fact it was simply trying to erase the history of Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia or other countries. And that's exactly what the BLM movement does. If it erases the history of our founding fathers and, and tries to say that somehow crimes that might have happened during, before the Civil War that were related to slavery and forget the fact that we had a Civil War where half a million people died trying to prove that slavery was a horrific thing and yes, that we can mature from that. No, they would rather destroy the foundations of who we are so that they can put into its place than the rubble of what remains a red-green axis type of country like Venezuela or otherwise that empowers the Marxist ideology. Well, so
0: uh, Dr. Jasser, what you're telling us is uh, the, the phenomenon is pretty easily recognized and defined, but yet the challenge that we have is You know, America is divided right now because we see it the way you've analyzed it, but yet we've got friends, uh, associates that we work with that see it completely differently. And it just boggles my mind that you can lay out facts to an individual and they dismiss them because it doesn't fit the narrative. Uh, and it really concerns me. Uh, it's, you're, a, you're a medical doctor. It's, it's like a, a, a psychosis of some sort, a mass psychosis. Uh, do you see that at all um, in America? I mean, we saw it in Germany, the Third Reich and whatever. That was a mass psychosis.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you see the, you know, if you look at the Saul Alinsky type, you know, method of putting mass movements into place, there's layers to it, right? So you've got the layers of true believers that actually believe in redistribution of property. You see uh, a medical association is now talking about lack of equity in healthcare, in which ultimately they're getting folks, doctors that I know don't agree with most of what they're talking about, and yet they're signing on to it to say that we have amends to make with various minority communities. Not because they actually believe. So they aren't the true believers. That's another layer. You've got a layer of the elite who are simply spineless, that are, are not wanting to address the primary issue because they fear being labeled bigots, being labeled as as you know uh, a part of the problem uh, versus being part of the solution, as they see, simply to admit that somehow we are all racist and our institutions are founded on, on evil, which... I don't see how that gets them what they need. And Condoleezza Rice said it best on The View. She said, why do we need to live in the past? Let's move forward. And this is why I think so much of the the solution, Ron, is going to come from, just like in my community, in the Islamic community, they have a lot, even though I say some of the exact same things, when I was testifying to Congress about radical Islam, I had... Uh, Congresswoman uh, Spire from California tell me, who am I to be talking about religious law? She's Catholic and she would never you know, have this conversation. Uh, it would have to be somebody who's an expert in Catholic canonic law. I said, I can't believe you're saying this in the House of Congress. A-, a Congress formed, a building formed after a revolution in which they were fighting against theocracy, in which they were fighting for the ability of the lay community not to have their governments run by the men in robes, And you're telling me that I, as a Muslim, cannot have an opinion in these halls about radical Islam and the theocracy and the evil of theocracy. So similarly, when it comes to fighting the ideas that are beginning to penetrate in America because of of critical race theory and BLM, we see it in every institution, the military, our educational system, we see it in our media. They are infiltrating every institution to make sure that nobody can speak up. And we're going to have to find people from within these race communities to to speak the truth because it's a lot harder for them to counter African-Americans that are both saying the same thing I am. Just like in the Muslim community, they have the harder time countering that. And I think also within the military, we're going to have to find folks that are courageous enough to speak up that aren't afraid of being told they're violating the UCMJ because they're not. They're standing up for the UCMJ by saying that our military is not racist. That our military is the most moral fighting force on the planet, but we need to find people of courage to do that.
0: Well, I'll tell you that you're so right. I mean, fear just dominates. Uh, you know, I I ran into a good friend at the Air Force Academy Cemetery at an event, and he's now a civil servant, retired Air Force Colonel, and I asked if if he was aware of what STARS was doing, our organization to stand against racism and radicalism. And he just froze up. I said, nobody's listening to us. Are are you aware of it? He was actually afraid to make a comment about what we're trying to do. And we were even told by some insurance companies that we reached out to for liability insurance for our directors and officers that we were too controversial. And when I heard that, I'm thinking, so if we were for racism and radicalism, would that make us less controversial? And so it's just crazy out there, uh, the, the depth that this ideology has penetrated. Uh, in the private sector, corporations are donating in support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, and you know, we read about some of the founders who are very anti-capitalist, You know, bought you know, third and fourth homes. Uh, with millions that they've been able to siphon off the um, the money that they're collecting, but I'll, I'll tell you, Dr. Jasser, uh, I was at the academy three weeks ago for a uh, for a lecture by an air officer commanding. <clears throat> and in the room was a second classman. she was a a junior, and she had a purple braid on her shoulder. And I've since learned that they have installed diversity and inclusion officers and NCOs at the cadet wing, cadet group, and cadet squadron levels. And they have a separate chain of command. They don't report to the squadron commander, group commander, or wing commander. They report to the academy diversity and inclusion officer that sits in the, uh, the superintendent's suite uh, along with the director of staff. And when I saw that, and I saw a leaked memoranda that described what their role was in these positions, I pictured the political officer in a, a Soviet-style unit. Um, it, it was For me, it was pretty disturbing. Uh, but it's becoming institutionalized now, not just in the military but across the entire federal government. And it was initially in, instituted in 2011 by executive order. A subsequent president president overruled that executive order and banned critical race theory training uh, throughout the entire federal government. And it has now been reinstated. And my understanding is that the pending National Defense Authorization Act has uh, funding and more legislation to, uh, to make these types of positions permanent across the entire federal government. Your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, Ron, I mean, again, Post nine eleven, the war uh, against radical Islam, n- a misnamed war against terrorism, uh, because of political correctness, uh, was a training ground, a clinic, and everything you're seeing now on this issue that's destroying us domestically. Uh, let me give you a couple uh, examples. Uh, chapter nine of my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, I talk about Nidal Hassan. Nidal Hassan's resume, as as much as as I'm proud of my own resume. Nidal Hassan's resume looks frighteningly like mine. Here's a guy who, parents immigrated from Jordan, Palestinian family, came to the U.S., was on an army scholarship through medical school, went to USIS, Uniformed Services Medical Center, medical school, and then became an army psychiatrist, was walking around Walter Reed Army Hospital with a card that said Soldier of Allah, and instead of giving lectures at Grand Rounds on psychiatric uh, issues, he started to talk about uh, uh, Awlaki and radical and Al Qaeda and how there's some sympathetic things they do and everybody in the room was was nudging themselves saying what is this guy talking about and we had a commission that that looked into what this this uh, traitor this horrific human being did on November fifth two thousand and nine when he killed fourteen of our fellow op- fourteen of our fellow uh, uh, military soldiers and injured thirty three. And a whole commission, after 180 pages, never put his name in the report, never mentioned Islamism, never mentioned jihad, none of the ideologies. In the Cold War, Ron, we had three to 400 people studying Russian war theory, Soviet war theory. Today, there's probably two or three that are studying Sharia and its, its legal war theory. And those probably, if you found out who they were, would disappear because of political correctness the next day. And this is a global... Uh, uh, conflict that has demonstratedly attacked Americans in every country because they realize how weak we are when it comes to f- countering that ideology. So Nidal Hassan is an example. Then after that, in 2012 and 13, the Department of Defense had its, its books on jihad cleansed and removed by the Obama administration because it wasn't politically correct because Islamist groups wanted them removed. So now fast forward to what's happening with critical race theory. It's natural that the same people, Ron, that removed all of these books and PowerPoints and other things. Yes, they did find a few PowerPoints that talked about nuking Mecca and other things that was complete idiocy, that somehow some idiot with a PowerPoint uh, said at some, uh, um, you know, um, whatever, presentation... And then they said, that's what's being taught all across the Pentagon. So they removed all of it. And that's what BLM does. They find some cop that does something who's a, who's a nutcase that shouldn't be carrying a badge. And then all of a sudden they generalize it on the entire police force. And they use it as a bludgeon to destroy our police force because we had one or two bad cops that didn't know how to arrest a, a citizen based on our laws and instead just became rogue. And this is exactly what happened with various teaching programs in the Pentagon and uh, across our entire inability to counter the ideas. So I'm not surprised. And now it's, it's in full throttle with critical race theory throughout under the guise of diversity programs, et cetera. And actually what it's all about is nullifying the impact of us advancing American ideas within our armed service services and also abroad.
0: Well, Dr. Jasra, we were honored when you agreed to join our Board of Advisors for STARS because we're working serious issues right now related to radicalism. And uh, we've got a pretty good sense for what it is and how it's playing out right now in America. What can we do to stem it?
1: Well, I have to tell you the playbook for us is the same as what I tell our Muslim youth and and, uh, folks that care about radical Islam, I would tell you when it comes to countering uh, uh, critical race theory is not only, remember, we are where we are right now in this battle because you and I and people who love this country, patriots are on defense. You got to keep playing some defense, but we need to develop an offense. So we need to start developing curricula for schools that is not only not teaching critical race theory, but actually teaching what America's values are, teaching that we have uh, uh, principles that uh, rise above identity politics, that nobody really cares what race or or national origin, you know, uh, ethnic origin you have. It's really about uh, uh, believing in a country that you want to protect for your kids and your grandkids, believing in institutions that this is the best democracy, best country on the planet, and there's a reason we'd want to uh, live here and we want to stay here that that uh, uh, there are values we want to protect so I would ask people to begin to engage in university settings in your school boards find out what curriculum is being taught not only to to prevent the radicalization of our youth by critical race theory ideas but also putting into that curriculum you had people running for governor in Virginia who basically said that we parents did not have a right to know what's on the curriculum seriously i mean we should now have movements to try to put into curricula teachings that the american system is one that is the best system in the world and is better than any other system and start to have debates about these things in media start to stand up for the fact that our sports events should not be uh, politicized that we should have areas in our culture that are protected from divisive politics and that diversity is not uh, a somehow unifying concept. You know, I always get hit with the diversity police and I tell them, oh, okay, diversity, if you really believe in it, is ideological diversity. So you should have conservatives, liberals, uh, orthodox, atheists, uh, uh, believers. That's what diversity is. But no, to them, diversity on Islamic issues is just having the imams and the Islamic centers that our, our establishment represented. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to this issue, demand diversity, but talk about ideological diversity in every corner that you can from California to, to Maine. Good. Well,
0: <clears throat> you are an important voice, Dr. Jasser. I mean, you testified before Congress, uh, you've been a, a regular on news programs or whatever. For our listeners, how can they support you and your efforts?
1: Well, I'm proud to work with all of you at STARS. And uh, our website uh, at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy is uh, AIF, as in forum, AIFdemocracy.org. And uh, they can join our newsletter, uh, uh, donate to our cause if that's the way they want to be involved, or work on social media to get our word out. Uh, Our Muslim Reform Movement has a website, muslimreformmovement.org. And uh, also on social media, uh, we're pushing out. Uh, um, I just pushed out a uh, uh, press release this week about Rashad Hussein's appointment and how much uh, we were against that because he doesn't represent ideological diversity. So every, every week we have new uh, uh, campaigns we're pushing out. Follow me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D R Z U H D I J A S S E R, and also at AIF Democracy.
0: Great. Well, you know, it, it's been an honor for me to to have befriended you and and to have had a lot of these types of discussions um, in other endeavors that we've been in, engaged in. Uh, and I, I think we're blessed to have you as a voice uh, in this particular area. So Dr. Jasser, thank you so much for uh, joining our program today.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you, Ron. Thank you for your service and all that you do. It's, it's an honor to work with you, thank you.